Mr. White moved his knight without thinking, and his adult son, Herbert, gleefully captured it. One step closer to victory. Unlike Herbert, Mr. White was not able to focus on the game. His old friend, Sergeant Major Morris, was coming to visit that night. They had been very close in their youth, but while White had stayed in England, married the love of his life, and had Herbert, Morris had joined the military and earned his fortune and fame in exotic, faraway lands. The two men had written to each other and stayed close even as Morris grew rich and White grew poor. Thinking of his friend and the past made Mr. White so distracted that Herbert had nearly won the game by the time there was a knock at the door. Mrs. White opened the door and let Morris in to shelter himself from the torrential thunderstorm. Sergeant Major Morris was a tall and athletically built man, but for some reason he seemed a bit pale and shaky. Perhaps it was the weather. White was curious. As he hung Morris's coat near the fire to dry, he asked his friend about the contents of his last letter. He had mentioned that he and his companions had found a monkey's paw. While this was an unusual charm here in England, he could not imagine that it was too strange over in India. Morris shook his head. He didn't want to talk about it. White was a little confused, as Morris had seemed eager to discuss the trinket in his letter. Mr. White was still painfully curious, but perhaps with a few drinks, Sergeant Major Morris would open up as he relaxed into the evening. In a few hours, whether it was the warm glow of the fire or the coziness of drinks while Mrs. White was sitting with her knitting, eventually Morris was ready to tell them more. The monkey's paw was cursed, said Morris. The Whites were practical people, but in the dim, cozy room, with rain and thunder raging outside, even Herbert leaned forward in interest. Morris had been calm in the confidence of his old friend, but as he told the story, he began to shift into his seat, clasping and unclasping his hands. Back in India, an old holy man had grown angry with people for trying to fight their destiny. In his rage and frustration, he made the monkey's paw. The paw would grant three wishes to the owner, but since wishes are a way to cheat one's natural fate, they would all go terribly wrong. These wishes were granted with no magical fireworks or fanfare, but so naturally that it would almost seem like a coincidence. The whites all chuckled. Perhaps any good fortune was a coincidence that was then attributed to the paw feeding the legend. Morris shook his head somberly, then seemed to get lost in thought for a moment as he gazed into the flames. The whites waited for him to continue in the heavy silence. Finally, the sergeant whispered that his commanding officer had used it. He paused to shudder. The officer had passed it on to his second-in-command, who made two wishes that had gone so badly that his third wish was death. That wish was also granted. This was how Sergeant Major Morris had come to own the paw. He, too, had already made his three wishes, though he wished that he hadn't. Trying to, middle, to meddle in your fate could only make things worse. Mr. White argued that maybe this magic worked like the old legends of gin, where you had to word things very carefully to avoid a trick. For the first time since starting his story, Sergeant Major Morris looked away from the fire and cast a brief smile at his dear friend, then pulled the paw from his pocket and threw it into the flame. Before he knew what he was doing, some mad instinct overthrew Mr. White, who dove into the fireplace to retrieve the paw. Morris begged White to throw it back. 
He reminded him that the old fakir had made it with a direct purpose to cause suffering, but White didn't care about strange, superstitious holy men. At worst, the paw was an exotic souvenir, and at best, it would allow him to such a tr- it would allow him granted wishes. There was no chance that he could allow such a treasure to be lost. Morris shook his head as he put on his coat and gave them one last warning before he left. All three whites examined the mummified paw on the table, its fingers outstretched. Outstretched? Hadn't it been closed into a fist when it was thrown into the fire? He was quite sure that it had. Herbert interrupted Mr. White's thoughts, asking what he would wish for. Mr. White smiled. It was hard to think of anything. He married the love of his life. They had a fine son and a good, strong house. Certainly money was tight, but overall life had been good, and he was happy. What? said Herbert in mock surprise. No castle, no empire, no jewelry and finery. His bright eyes twinkled good-naturedly as he teased his father. They had always been very close. Sorry, mother, he said to Mrs. White. He could be dressing you in the finest Paris fashion, but he's content to be here with the likes of us. Mrs. White snorted and shook her head. That's just good sense, she said. All right, all right, shrugged Herbert. Nothing too wild, then, but you still have two hundred pounds to pay on your mortgage. How nice would it be if you could pay that debt and finally get to retire a few years early? Mr. White laughed at his son's enthusiasm. It would be nice, a pleasant daydream. Mr. White couldn't help but play along with his son's joke. He raised the hand into the air, and in his loudest, most dramatic voice, he bellowed, I wish I had two hundred pounds. He let out a yelp of horror that interrupted his wife and his son's peals of laughter. The monkey's paw had twisted and squirmed in his hands as he looked at the floor where it had dropped. He saw one of the three fingers was now folded down as though it were forming the number two. Two wishes left. Mrs. White and Herbert laughed at Mr. White. He had clearly had too much to drink with Sergeant Major Morris. Eventually, he stopped trembling and they all shook their heads at how ridiculous it all was. The three whites went up to bed and slept peacefully. The next morning, they had a delicious breakfast that warmed them from the inside out. In the bright, cheery light of day, the previous night's events seemed even more comical. Herbert threw back the last dregs of his tea and gave his father's shoulder a loving squeeze and told him not to become a millionaire before he got back home at five o'clock. The whites could hear him chuckling at his own joke as he walked down the drive towards his factory job at Ma and Muggins. Mr. White had taken the day off, since he had known that he would probably be up late visiting with Morris. Once his morning cup of tea kicked in, he began to take care of some repairs around the house. It was late morning when he noticed the men, two thin, soft-handed white-collar types that kept hovering near the garden gate. It was with the air of men who needed to approach the house, but also dreaded to do so. They were there when he watered the plants by the door. They were still lingering when he had to rehang their aging front door. But it wasn't until he was mending the garden fence and started chatting with them that they became comfortable enough to tell him that they had come from Ma and Megan's and could they please go inside and have a talk. Once inside, the men declined tea and a chair. Both were pale and one had worried his hat out of shape in his anxiety. 
They had come with bad news. There had been an accident at the factory. Mrs. White gasped. Had Herbert been hurt? The taller man nodded. He had been terribly hurt, but he wasn't in any pain. Mrs. White caught his meeting and staggered backwards. Mr. White took a moment as the man prattled nervously about how much everyone at Ma and Megan's loved Herbert, but of course the company was not responsible for the death. Nonetheless, because they were fond of the boy, the company would offer them a compensation. Mr. White froze and asked how much. When the man said that they had brought 200 pounds, Mr. White couldn't breathe. Everything he saw and heard blurred together into a hurricane as he collapsed into a faint. The company had insisted that they bury Herbert quickly and in a closed casket. He had been horribly mangled in the machinery. It was impossible to embalm him when he was barely more than ground meat. He was buried a few miles from home, where he had spent his whole life, as his numb, shocked parents didn't try to move on, didn't even try to survive. Mr. White didn't eat, didn't sleep, didn't go to work. Mrs. White couldn't seem to stop sleeping. Simply climbing to their feet every morning took everything the couple had. Over a week after the funeral, late at night, Mrs. White shook him hard in bed. The paw! Where was the paw? They could make a wish. They could have Herbert back. Mr. White tried to tell her that it was wrong, that what had happened was just a coincidence, but she was manic. She tore through every drawer in the house, scattering their possessions all over the floor and muttering to herself with occasional shouts at her husband. Eventually she found it in a dresser drawer and thrust it into Mr. White's hands. The gnarled hand filled him with dread, almost as much as his wide-eyed, panting wife. Grief had made her into a different woman, a woman dark and desperate, whom he had never seen before. When she had nearly given herself a heart attack, finally he raised the paw and stuttered out the wish. She didn't even spare him a second glance as she rocketed down the stairs into the door. She stared urgently into the darkness as Mr. White put the paw with its one extended finger pointing in blame on the counter. When they waited a long time and nothing happened, Mrs. White broke into frantic tears and they headed back to bed. Mr. White shared her grief but was also relieved that the cursed paw had been a sham and that their misfortune had been a coincidence. They had just drifted back off to sleep when a knock at the door sounded. Mrs. White was up as though she had received an electric shock. For the second time that night, she flew down the stairs, exclaiming that she had forgotten that he was buried a few miles away. Of course it would take him a while to walk down there. Mr. White swallowed a lump in his throat. They had buried him ten days ago. In ten days, a body would be green and red and bloated and vile. Herbert had been so shredded by the machines that they had needed to identify him by his clothes. As the knocking grew more and more intense, Mr. White wondered at the state of whatever was behind that door. Mrs. White called out to her son, ignoring the violent slamming on the door was not at all like her gentle son. Ignoring the stench of decay that drifted through the shaking door, Mrs. White's fingers trembled in excitement, and she dropped the key as Mr. White begged her not to open the door. Mrs. White scoffed. "'What are you talking about?' she asked sweetly. "'It's our Herbert!' She smiled as though she were opening the gates to heaven, even as the door heaved so much from its attack that the door could not be unbolted. "'That thing is not our son. 
Mr. White insisted as his wife tried to turn the key. He grabbed the paw in a panic, and the moment the wish was past his lips, the door stopped moving. Finally, without all of the pounding pressure on the bolt, the door could be opened. Outside the door, there was nothing but dark and the quickly fading smell of decay as Mr. White held the monkey fist in his own. Nade Mermaid here, and this was my adaptation of The Monkey's Paw, written by W.W. Jacobs and first published in 1902, which is a bit on the young side for the stories we usually cover in this podcast, but honestly, it's just way too fun of a story to resist. I really love this one. It's it's creepy. It's kind of got that cool uh, Victorian, which you know I love period pieces, and so that's really, really neat. There is a little bit of context here. Of course, 200 pounds is not much in the UK today, but as at least not much as far as compensation for a loved one. But it's about the equivalent of $25,000 in today's American money. So we're talking about a significant amount here. It's usually the recommended amount that people have for life insurance anyway. So it's understandable that the company would be giving them this amount of money, not so much to pay Mr. White's mortgage, but as final expenses. Um, I used to be a life insurance agent, and they talked about how if you don't have any debt at all, the recommended base amount for life insurance is about $25,000, because a headstone alone is thousands of dollars, right? I mean, it's it's an industry, and they find ways to get money out of you every single possible turn that they can. So you want to have at least kind of that base sum to bury your loved ones with and so um it's kind of interesting that that's exactly how much money it translates to even today i was a little interested in that myself so and we know of course stated in here that mr white is pretty content so his only real debt seems to be that mortgage on his house which he only has 25 grand left of and then it's assumed that after he pays that off he'll work a few more years to build up a little more savings and then he plans to retire all of that, of course, is kind of uh, interrupted by this story. But it is. It's way too good of a story to mix. It's brilliantly told. If you are not put off by kind of the Victorian English that it's told in, which I myself am not. I like books written in that era. I love, you know, some Charles Dickens and other early 19th century stuff. So to me, it's it's perfectly fun to list, to read those. But I know a lot of people struggle with the older English and those kind of stories. Um, yeah, it's, it's definitely a great one. He, of course, tells it much more brilliantly than I can because, honestly, with any story, nothing's going to beat the original. Um, but it's it's fantastic. It's a great story. that He draws out the suspense for a long, long time. And it's, it's brilliant because he never actually has to get very detailed about... Herbert's body like she doesn't open the door and see a zombie corpse or anything like that he doesn't have to be openly gory because he spends so long in Mr. White's head building up this emotion of dread and showing how the grief has affected Mrs. White to where she's almost insane by this point she's almost totally lost her mind and um just the yeah the buildup of that emotional and psychological tension is just brilliantly done and it's it's beautiful it seems like british works from this time period they're just really great at capturing how people think and i i, I don't know i just really like it 
The story also kind of reminds me of some other stories that I've come across, of course. You know, they say there's nothing new under the sun, right? And uh, this being what I do, I've dove into several stories. And uh, some of you may recall a couple of years ago I did on my YouTube channel, I've read through the entire Narnia series. There's something about this story that kind of vaguely reminds me of the island in the Dawn Treader. I think it's just called the Dark Island where it's the island where dreams come true, but of course dreams that people actually have. Not daydreams or fantasies, but actual dreams. At least mine tend to not be very nice, and so it's, it really would be more appropriate to call it the island where nightmares come true. And uh, I think there's a certain amount of that in this, in the sense that Mrs. White has idealized what it will be like to have Herbert back. She hasn't considered that that his body has been destroyed and even if he comes back to life he's going to be in agony for as long as he continues to be around because it's the short story doesn't go into huge detail about the state that his body is in but it does mention that he was so badly mangled that they had to identify him with his clothing and not with any part of his body so you know it's pretty bad so so he would be in the pain of having his body torn apart all the time and of course he's had 10 days to begin to decay so I had to look up because the book doesn't clarify what a stage of decay after like 10 days would be and obviously it's a hard question to ask because it depends on you know whether you're in the desert or whether it's raining you know a lot of environmental factors there I'm probably on some kind of watch list now for <laughs> for looking that up but uh, I, I thought it would give more context to the story to just kind of try and accurately portray where old Herbert would be at at this point, and apparently it's at like the bloaty, gassy stage of, of decomposition. Real pleasant. So while the book doesn't specifically mention an odor, I didn't see how there wouldn't be one. <laughs> so I, I had to at least mention it, just to, for the realism of what Herbert's body would be up to at about that time. And again, it's just a guesstimate because it, you know, where I live, the weather's very different from the UK. I don't know the, you know, how the rate of decomposition changes based on where you live. But in general, that's about where it would be at 10 days. It's kind of the, the bloaty, stinky stage. And so, you know, that's, that's super pleasant. But um, yeah, I just, I think it's brilliantly put together and I do love that it kind of plays with that same idea that the Dream Island at Narnia does where your idealized fantasy is not usually what you're going to end up getting. It also reminded me of a more violent version of The Fisherman and His Wife. This one is an older legend and there's variations on it all over. I used to listen to it in the car on road trips with my family as a kid. We had this cassette tape that was full of all of these old stories and legends. I wish I knew where that was, because that was a cool tape. It was my favorite. But um, anyway, the fisherman and his wife, they're super, super poor fishermen. All they ever drink is, like, fish broth, which sounds absolutely terrible. I even like seafood, but I don't like fish broth, right? So this sounds like a pretty miserable, pretty broke existence. Even then, the broth is pretty much just water, and they're hungry all the time. Well, the fisherman catches a golden fish that says that if he lets it go... Um, that he will grant the fisherman three wishes. So the first thing the fisherman wishes that morning is for a nice, big, juicy sausage, just to get some real protein in his tummy for the first time in what we can assume is years, right? 
And he wishes it, and he gets the big sausage, and his wife is furious. She cannot believe he wasted one of their three precious wishes on something as ridiculous as a sausage. If he had wished for millions of dollars or, or gold or anything like that, then they could have bought tons of sausage. But no, he had to wish for a sausage. She goes on and on and on, till finally he's so fed up with her, he says, Fine, you know what, it's not even worth it. I wish that sausage was stuck to your nose. So then it is. This is the part where all of the kids listening to the cassette in the in the car just lose their minds and are laughing until just their ribs and their tummies ache. It is hilarious. And the narrator did a fantastic job. If anybody finds these tapes, I love you. Tell me where you found them. But, but um, so she, he wishes it was stuck to her nose. Obviously, for his third wish, he has to wish it off from her. He can't just leave it there forever. So, especially if we're talking about, like, an old German story where the sausages are, like, two and a half, three feet long and can weigh several pounds. You know, gotta get rid of that. So, his third wish, he wishes the sausage gone. And at this point, um, you know, they're pretty much back where they started. And kind of the lesson in that one is that sometimes wishing your circumstances were different only makes them worse and that it's not worth sowing discord among each other just to satisfy your greed. And I think it's kind of similar here with the monkey's paw in that the message is kind of hammered right into you about meddling with fate and that kind of thing. But, um, yeah, I think it's, it's just a much more gruesome version of the same kind of moral where you're letting something like three wishes, something that may not even be the best for you, get in the way of having a good relationship or a good life. I mean, this cost Mr. White and Mrs. White their son. And so, you know, it's, it's just kind of rough. It also kind of comes from a, you know, strange standpoint of actually believing in the power of the paw. Because Mr. and Mrs. White obviously don't believe that the monkey's paw is an actual cursed monkey's paw when they make the wish. They're doing it as just kind of a joke. And so then when stuff actually starts to happen, their better, more logical parts of their brain are a little confused. And that just kind of builds up the dread in the story as well, because everything they and you know to be true and normal and natural has kind of been upended, which only makes everything kind of escalate from there. Um, just quick disclaimer too: the picture that I attached to this episode is not an actual monkey paw. That's a chicken foot. I, I found it at the grocery store. I used them to make bone broth for myself and my dogs. And I had roasted it and it came out looking so gruesome that it was perfect for the picture for this week's episode. I don't even know where to find an actual monkey paw. So that was about as close as I can get. And I figured it looked icky enough that unless you're an actual zoologist, you can probably dismiss it. But I did figure, you know, it's the internet. Somebody's going to point out any flaws and errors so I did figure I'd confess right here that is an actual chicken's foot an actual meat product that you can buy from the grocery store I didn't go hunt down any monkeys I did see a couple monkeys in between the last few episodes because I went to a petting zoo but they are all unharmed if anything I maybe gave them a few too many Cheerios but the monkeys are okay that's a chicken foot um, thank you for listening today. Have a wonderful weekend, and please don't forget to like, subscribe, follow on Facebook, and make sure to share this show with all of your friends. Again, this season we're going to be getting back into, um, instead of doing a themed season, 
we're just going to go ahead and just pick a different story from anywhere in the world every day. And I know this one, again, was a little more modern than I usually do, but I couldn't help but do this story. It's just too much fun. Have a wonderful weekend, guys, and uh, stay safe.